So basically the key is order is important, but it's going to be order in which things are considered and not necessarily order in which things are presented. You know, everyone wants to say you should be first or last. And the answer is you probably should be first considered. Welcome to Humans of SaaS. I'm your host, Ben Wynn, and on this show, I talk to entrepreneurs, innovators, and leaders from the tech industry who each have a unique and compelling story to share. Eric Johnson is the director of the Center for Decision Sciences at Columbia University and author of the newly released fantastic book, The Elements of Choice. His expertise lies in how we make decisions, but also how those decisions are influenced by how our choices are perceived. In this episode, we talk about the science of decision-making, the tools that can be employed to steer our decision-making, and how it all applies to the larger context of tech and customer experience. Thank you so much, first and foremost, for, for making the time to, uh, to come on the show today. Really good to be with you. So the reason, I, one of the main reasons I wanted to bring you on, you know, I have a personal interest because this has always been a passion of mine is how humans make decisions, how humans think, why we think the way we think. That's probably what's drawn me towards marketing and, and people and, and being in this sort of relationships driven space. And the other reason is I just think there's a lot that our industry can learn from you. I think that your perspective is one that I don't normally get to feature on the show. We have a lot of sort of founders and tech leaders, but hearing from people who are actually doing research and publishing data and new information and insights is super valuable that we can take a lot away from. So I'm excited to dig into um, some of the things you talk about in your book and in your research and see sort of what we can extract out and, and steal for the tech industry. Well, thanks a lot. And, but some of what I've, I, I write about is things I've learned watching the tech industry. So it's a two-way street. Definitely. I love that. Well, I think the best place to start to make sure we're all sort of on the same page of the conversation is with choice architecture itself. Um, so can you give sort of the, the what we say is the elevator pitch of what is choice architecture and why is it an important concept for us to talk about? So the simple way of thinking about it, every time you make a choice, someone has designed that choice. They've decided how many options to present to you, what attributes, and all sorts of things. So let's take a simple concrete example. You're asking your spouse, where should we go to dinner tonight? Mm -hmm. And they answer something with a set of restaurants. They've made a decision about the order, which restaurants are there, which aren't there. And so they have been what I'll call a designer. That's a little bit easier to say than choice architect. So, and those decisions they've made will influence you. If a restaurant's not on the list, it's less likely to be chosen. We know that the restaurant that's first on that list, if it's not long, is more likely to be chosen. Maybe they tell you about how good the food is. Maybe they tell you about how long it takes to get to the restaurant. Those are all going to influence your choice. We're going to call you the chooser and then the choice architect, the designer. And designers are making lots of decisions before you ever get to see the choice. In fact, in lots of ways, they're your hidden partner in making choices. And this is a unconscious thing that they're doing, right? This is sort of just based on... I mean, is it, well, is it conscious or is it unconscious or is it in the it, it, example it, you gave? It's going both. to depend upon the designer. Most designers, you know, hopefully, in my case, my wife's a psychologist, so I think she knows all this. And so for her, it could well be a conscious choice. But in most cases, most walking around people, it's going to be something they just do without thinking. But many firms, many website designers, this is in fact something they think about, but they don't really realize, I think, how powerful this is. You know, maybe A-B test will finally teach them, but it's not something walking around people are aware of. It's sort of a secret power that designers have that they don't appreciate. 
Definitely. I mean, what are the so first of all, I mean, I should point out the way to win that that uh, discussion on where to go for dinner. The trick is to say, um, guess where I'm taking you to dinner. And then they will they're just going to say where they want to go. And then, yep, you're right. And then no argument. Guess what movie we're watching tonight? You know, it works for everything. And I hope that, in fact, you like the movie that's suggested. That would be nice. That's the second. First, they have to like it. And then, yeah, it's a second uh, priority. But um, what are the so I mean, you said that a lot of people are doing this subconsciously, walking around, designing websites, living their lives without knowing that they are either the designer, the choice designer, a choice architect, uh, or the chooser. They're just sort of participating in these things subconsciously. What are the consequences of that? Why is this something that we should be more conscious of? So for the chooser, if the designer knows what they're doing, they could be exploiting you. They right. could be influencing you against your own best interest. And you know, I, I in the book, I say I'm an optimist. So I'm assuming designers trying to help choosers, but that's clearly not always the case. And so you're unaware of it and it's affecting you and that's not a good state of affairs. Can you give an example of, of where we, how we might be subject to that today? Is there a specific example of how someone might be manipulating us for, for not the best reasons? I am going to be a little bit careful there because I don't want, want to alienate anyone, but I'll give you one case that was taken to the FTC. And that is a, a place where there were four choices and one of them cost you money. You basically ended up with a monthly payment for a, a free credit card. And if you did that, uh, you, you would be billed at $12 a month. In newspaper days, they would call it below the fold. You'd have to scroll to see it. The three were unchecked. That one was pre-checked. So clearly, that was bad enough that the FTC took those folks to court and won. Interesting. It's pretty flagrant. And I know I know we're going to get to the, the power of defaults in a little bit, which I'm I'm curious about, but I'm curious about, I mean, I don't want to get too deep too quick, but what are the implications of it? If someone's always designing the choices they represent, they're presenting and someone is always choosing and their choice is being influenced, what does that say about sort of free will and where we are? Like, you know, our, our ability to truly choose, are we ever truly choosing or are all of our actions and what we consider choices simply a is something that could have been predicted if the algorithm was good enough, essentially. Look, there are probably people who believe we don't have free will. Most of us have the illusion that we are making our choices, and the truth is somewhere in between. You know, these outside influences matter. You know, we're gonna we tend to be unaware of them because we're too busy making choices to think about them. So, if, if you think you're looking at the menu, you're not saying why is that here. You're saying what do I, I'm hungry? I want to eat. What do I get to right. order? So, I, the the bottom line is, I think. There are outside influences, just like there are outside influences for most of our behavior. But, you know, it's not as if it's predetermined. That makes sense. And I think you gave a great example there, which is sort of how we might encounter this in our daily lives in a really sort of straightforward way, which is menu design. What are some things that restaurants do or don't do, but maybe they should do on their menus to get you to get us to choose certain items or lean a certain way? So one, one thing that I before we start there, I have to say a lot of the consulting advice in menu design is wrong. It's essentially experts' intuitions about what works. And when right. people sat down and actually did research, like watch people's eyes as they looked at menus, it turns out a lot of the things that you've learned in hotel and restaurant school is just wrong. That's the first thing. So that that's sort of a statement. Be careful of what your consultants are basing their advice on. Um, there's actually a paper just, you know, I think it's sort of funny. It's called, um, do consultants know what they are doing or are they just blowing smoke? And the conclusion of the paper is they're blowing smoke. Fair enough. 
But what the research shows is that typically it's not a good thing to be at the end of a long list. Unless, of course, um, that list is spoken. So it's going to be a little more complicated than you think. But the key is to understand the principle, which is if it's a short list, you're going to stop reading. There's an advantage to being at the top. If there's a long list and you don't have control, like in one of those fancy restaurants where someone reads the menu to you, yeah, you know, there's an advantage because you're not going to remember what's first or right. in the middle of the list. There are a couple of simple principles that you know I, I talk about, and when you put those principles, the answer is clear. It's just not going to be as simple as always be first or always be last. It's going to depend right. upon on the how things are communicated. I think the key is be the thing that's considered is more important than anything else. And that means you're going to be first in the list if it's a written menu. If it's an oral menu, it might well be at the end. Right. That makes sense. I, I am having flashbacks to uh, my days as a bartender uh, at a restaurant in Canada, and I had to memorize our list of must have been 40, 50 beers. And I had to memorize them in a specific order. And I'm like now realizing that order was definitely from cheapest to most expensive. So that and I think that was probably so that I'm pretty sure that was the order so that whatever I ended on or whatever it was, was or was most recent was our most expensive beer. Right. Now, notice when you were given that list, it was done by a designer. I mean, I guess it must have been. Now I know. Now I'm reflecting back. I'm like, oh, yeah, I was manipulating people to get more expensive beer. But at the, well, you know, hopefully it wasn't more expensive. It was most profitable for them. That's a good point. That is hopefully the case. I, yes. I'm not sure of their, of their yeah. data, but that's... We won't, we won't talk about the intelligence of your former employers. <laughs> I mean, I had to wear a shirt that said, there's no place like home plate and um, take a picture. It'll last longer. Um, so it wasn't exactly the uh, it wasn't a high, <laughs> a high end place with a crazy wine list. But interesting. So read a menu from end to, to finish. So read a menu in reverse, essentially, would be the best advice if you want to get the most value. If, if the other person's actually being as smart as they think they are. But another way of saying that is, is, is look at the menu a couple different ways. Excellent. Well, I mean, I want to go back to that example you shared earlier about the uh, accepting, you know, where the, it was sort of a default on for the twelve ninety nine monthly payments. Um, why are defaults so powerful? Well, so it turns out defaults, and just to make it clear to everyone, we're not talking about financial defaults. We're talking about what happens when you don't take an action. In HTML, this is literally just you know one line of code. I mean, it's 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 really trivial to do. And it can have a huge influence. So just to give you one example before we talk about why it works, um, along with Dan Goldstein, who's at Microsoft Research now, we looked at people's decisions to be an organ donor or not. And what we found was that people were much more willing to be a donor when it was pre-checked than when it was not. And importantly, if we force people to make a choice, you know, if we said you can't go on until you choose one of these boxes, they more often, 79% of the time, chose to be a donor. If they had to change the default, it was only about 42% of the time. So it's almost doubling the number of people who are willing to be donors in our experiments by that. And it turns out you see similar patterns in real world data. We looked at countries in Europe. So to answer it, there are three key processes. And when you get these three all aligned, you get bigger default effects. The first is defaults make decision making easy. One of the right. reasons it works so well with organ donation is people don't want to think about what's happening to their body when they're dead. It's really Very unpleasant. True. So it's easy just to take the default. A second thing is an endorsement, which is maybe this is what the firm or the country or the company wants me to pick. Maybe it, th it thinks it's in my best interest. You know, it's endorsing that option. 
The third is a little bit trickier and more psychological, but we tend to think about options differently when we own them, when they're ours, than when we don't own them. That's called the endowment effect. And what that says is basically, I'm going to think about the advantages of the pre-checked box before I think about its disadvantages. Oh, interesting. And that has and that makes the default more powerful. So we've done research with um, across many people's studies, not just ours, and default effects differ. They're not always the kind of doubling we see in our organization work. Sometimes they're bigger, but often they're smaller. And we think it's because the three E's, again, ease, endorsement, and endowment, all work in the same direction or not. You know, so for example, if you're a firm that's um, not so good and they pick an option, you might start thinking, why did they pick that option? Endorsement will go in the wrong direction. Interesting. That's really cool. I already want to do like a lot of, now I want to start experimenting like right away. I'm going to start messing with our website. But I love one of the other, I think, I mean, organ donation, I think is a, a really strong example. I've, I feel like I've read some of that research before around, also around the, um, well, you mentioned ease, right? So I think in, you'd know better than me, but I think it's Austria or, or Germany or something. It's in some countries like Canada, you have to mail something in to become an organ donor. You have to check it off, mail it back. But there you get, you're, you're automatically defaulted in and then you have to mail to un to remove yourself from the organ donor list right. or something like yeah. that? So that would be a way of manipulating ease. So we did work with uh, auto insurance where you had to send in a form and that generated very big differences in whether people had no fault policies or not and cost them hundreds of dollars a year. Makes sense. I mean, and, and another example you give in your book is about um, Google. And I didn't even know this was a thing, so I was shocked to, to read it. But Google has this agreement with Apple to have them pre-installed as the de facto search engine on all their devices. And that's like a huge portion of Apple's revenue. So what is the effect of that is sort of my, my first question. I've got a couple. Okay, so the, the one thing I found really remarkable when I started looking in this, and, and you know, this is in the public record, is that the payments, the New York Times estimates the payments as $12 billion. That's, yes, B, billion. $12 billion. Going from, from Google to Apple just to beat the default search engine on the iPhone alone. On the, no, so not on the iPad or, or other well, Apple devices? Well, probably the iPad, just, but only uh -huh. in iOS. Uh, iOS, they're it, just always the default search engine. Right. They're paying $12 I, billion dollars the, to just have that, that. From what I've read, that's what the wow. covers. And, you know, Apple's search engine, not all the revenue, but their search engine revenue in the U.S. is only in the 40, north side of $40 billion. So it's a big chunk. Um, and in fact, you know, the, Apple was recently, um, and Google, were, the last administration filed an antitrust suit about that agreement. Um, so that's big. So it obviously yeah. is in the best interest. And that shows defaults aren't just about organ donation, although that, that's important. They're really about people's you know, attention. Well, and I think it brings a good point. Whereas, so for organ donation, one could say that that is, I mean, depending on how much people believe in having a, a government that at least takes a stance on what they think is best for you, right? But let's say organ donation, I think most people would agree is better for the health of the society as a whole to have people you know, have that being made use of, you know, barring, you know, specific moral or religious ob objections. But for Google being installed as the default browser or default search engine, that feels a little bit more not necessarily in the public's best interest. Like it might be neutral. It might be bad. It might be good. You like it depends on your view, but that's more in that gray area where it feels like we're just sort of being manipulated. Then it's not a conscious decision to use Google. I, th I think that's right. And you know, it, it's interesting because it's not like people have a lot of experience with other search engines, and maybe they don't think it makes a difference. But it's not a it's, it's not a decision that's coming out of a, a vast 
experience with the other search engines. You know, I, I, as I mentioned, I have friends who work at Microsoft, and it's not that everyone has used Microsoft and switched to yeah, Google. Exactly. Yeah, and people, a lot of people haven't tried DuckDuckGo or Bing or right. any of the other. There's some new, uh, some other cool new ones. There's Tor. There's a there's a few, and it's unless you're specifically told about them and you're told for a specific reason, and you're someone who maybe really cares about your privacy, you're going to go out of your way to change the default. Even another example, and maybe I haven't gotten there in the book yet, but I just deleted Apple Maps off of my phone because it's just not as good. Google Maps is way better, but you have to proactively install Google Maps, and then you'd have to go delete Apple Maps because everything, anytime there's an automation, it always tries to steer you to Apple Maps, not Google Maps. I want to skip beyond defaults, but the best example I can think of is what's happened recently with tracking on your phone, where Apple switched the default from you. The the app can ask you to track to the default is you're not yeah. track, location tracking. And as you right. know, that's created a huge pushback, particularly from uh, Facebook and others, because they basically, their advertising is much less targeted. And we'll feel we'll feel terrible for them. <laughs> they're they're really suffering over a Facebook, but um, it's a it is a great example. We can all we've all been asked, and, and we can relate to that now. And, and cookies as well, you know, and browsers, and having to accept every single new site you go to. That, I mean, that's a great point because it's putting a tax on the user, and it's also asking people probably when they're least concerned their their privacy. I'm going to Google Flights because I want a flight. I'm going to right. Amazon because I want to buy something. And then for you to say, by the way, we want to ask you a couple of questions of privacy. It's almost ensured that you're not going to get people's attention. Today's show is brought to you by Catalyst Software, the fastest growing customer success platform on the market. Catalyst gives you unmatched customizability, a seamless bi-directional Salesforce integration that takes less than five minutes to set up, and a world-class customer success team that'll be by your side every step of the way. Let's be honest, whatever you're currently using might be good enough, but is good enough really what you're aiming for? Take your CS team to the next level by switching to Catalyst today. To learn more, visit Catalyst.io. And if you aren't looking for a CS platform right now, you should subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn anyways. I make daily memes, we host all sorts of events, and we love to give away our swag, which has been called the comfiest swag in the industry. Again, check out Catalyst.io to learn more. And that's a good, actually a good sort of segue into what I wanted to move to next, which is options. Because, I mean, there's obviously a lot of things to consider when you're talking about the number of options and the order and the, whether there's accompanying text and, and some of those concepts. Um, and with cookies specifically, I don't think any two are alike. I've seen ones that are yes, no, ones with defaults, one that have ones that have 12 options that are like, please check off the things that you would like us to track or not track. Right. And there seems like a, to be a plethora, like there's no universally agreed to way to do this. So yeah, can you can you speak a little to the to some of those levers when it comes to selecting options and designing these these uh, systems? Right. So I mean, you, you make one very good point, which is and you know, sort of the lore in decision making is too many options can be bad. And that's right. But you know, think about it. Imagine you were given a simple yes, no. Do you want to have cookies installed with a little explanation versus what at least one of the providers does is, do you want to keep cookies if, or do you want to see more information? Then you go to the more information, there are six options. And you have to read text to understand them all. And none of them are particularly easy to understand. Um, I looked right. at one today that actually described the policy for each of the seven underlying technologies. 
And so what happens is people, of course, don't engage in a decision when there are too many options. So what that's doing, and that's, let's go outside of cookies in general. Imagine you're trying to buy uh, a wine or, God forbid, I was looking for a pair of gloves on Amazon. They're only 125. Right. I don't think my decisions can be better. Well, the best example I have is in New York City schools when you're choosing a high school. And I was just Mm -hmm. corresponding earlier today with the... uh, Nobel Prize winner who designed the system. They present oh, wow. 769 high schools to kids to choose from. Okay. This is now, when kids are, are 13? Yeah, 13 and 14. They're picking high schools. Um, and clearly a lot of those are irrelevant. Um, and it's really ironic because the idea was basically kids would go to good schools and the bad schools would close down. Great idea. But if kids aren't finding the good schools, mm-hmm. you know, they're in trouble. So one of the things is a choice architect is doing, and there's a bunch of things beyond defaults, is the point, is they're choosing how many options to present. And that's actually a little more subtle than keeping it small. You should keep it within reason because each additional option requires more work to, to think about. But at the same time, it could present a different kind of option. So going back to high schools, one could be a vote, a vote tech for Marine. And another one could be, uh, which is, these all exist, uh, performing arts. Another one could be college prep. So you need to make sure you, have, you provide enough variety, particularly if you don't know much about, about the, the chooser. Keep it simple, but also keep enough variety that people actually will get to see different kinds of schools that might be better for them. So what's this? What's the solution to that? And also, just I mean, I know we're we're moving on from defaults, but is there a default? Like, if you don't select, you're going, you're automatically going to this high school. Um, that's a great question, and it turns out that there, the, those high schools are pretty bad. You get to, I mean, basically they randomly assign you, and those are the ones no one wants to go wow. to. Wow, randomly so, assigned. So it's it's really one thing that happens, by the way, when you have too many choices, you look at just one attribute. You analyze them all with like one lens. One attribute. So like in dating right. sites, you tend to look at the person who has the best picture. Right. And, and particularly on, on Tinder, right, where there's an infinite number of options. Um, you don't really necessarily look at other, other attributes. And that could not be, that may be not the only thing you care about. And in fact, it's not actually clear the pictures are necessarily entirely truthful. Um, right. I've been told. Um, <laughs> so you may be searching on a very bad queue because you have too many options. So this poor student basically looked at graduation rates and it turns out in New York City schools, there are schools with graduation rates that are as low as 40%. Only 40% of the kids who go in actually get degrees. Wow. So it's a good thing, but the problem is there's something else that happens, which is those are the very selective schools. There, and, and this poor kid who was actually very bright got into none of his first choice schools. And then he got into the second round. So that's, that's a case where he would have been better off. So... With a smaller set of selected schools, he should have been able to get a customized set, maybe of college prep schools, you know, within 30 minutes commute of his area. And people have done that and people do better choices. So a designer can help choosers by presenting the right set. I, lo- I love that. And I, I think especially like because that seems like something where technology would allow us a, a major advantage in that, you know, at one point it was probably very difficult. You weren't going to create a custom physical notebook, like handbook to send to each individual student with some of those things, like you said, around graduation rates or location or or things like that. But now, I mean, we could, it'd be very simple to build a filtering system where you can filter for the the attributes that matter most and then see what, what comes up. So is that something that's being done or is this actively being worked on or is this something you're advocating for? 
as, as something that needs to change. So there's some initial pilot research that's been done. And in New York, there's a couple moves like that. But until two or three years ago, it was still a book, a physical book, wow. the size of an old school phone directory. So it's very hard to have a phone directory customized for each person. I, by the way, I call that whole idea of using customized choice architectures a choice engine, which is basically a place that actually helps you make a choice by being interactive. And can be interactive to lots of things. It could be interactive to your preferences. You could say, I want college prep or I want that, just like you would on a, a, a flight search engine, for example, is a good example of, of a choice engine. It can also use information it knows about you to right. customize that. If, you, if you've accepted the cookies. Right, right. So, I mean, cookies could be useful in that sense. I'm not, I'm certainly not saying customization is bad. Well, it's, it's always a trade off. That's why people still like Google, right? Because it's, yes, it's not the most, let's say, like unbiased search engine or or anything like that. But like, because it knows you best, you know, for better, or for worse, it'll give you the results. You're, it'll, it's more likely to give you the results that you're looking for. And the same with those sites, when you do accept cookies, it's kind of like, well, do I want every time I go to Netflix, do I want to see every single option they have? Or do I want to see the options that their algorithm has learned I'm more likely to enjoy? Not that I trust their algorithm. I think it needs some improvement because it keeps recommending terrible movies to me. But um, as an example. So I, I talk quite a bit about Netflix. And, and one of the interesting things about Netflix is, A, they've done an amazing amount of A-B testing. But people expect them to be the Library of Congress, have all the films you could want to see and help you find the right one. In fact, they're trying to they have a very simple mission, which is to basically keep you watching the programming that costs them the least to license. Similar to the beers on the menu being the most profitable. Right. It's interesting. You know, that's actually makes lots of sense. If, if you know, if the crown is incredibly expensive to produce. It's about $10 million an episode. And so, yeah, I'd love to see the crown in quality production for every hour I spend on Netflix and they'd go broke. Right. They want to show the most profitable stuff. Interesting. And then so it, what's interesting is then how do you rationalize that with, because I'm sure there are, Again, I want to assume best intent. So I'm sure there are people on their team who are saying, okay, we want to show the best quality. We want to show the, the the most profitable content, but we also want to deliver an amazing customer experience and we want to give people stuff they're going to enjoy. So I'm curious, I, I'd be curious to see like how that gets rationalized internally, what, what wins out or if there's a compromise and sort of a way to do both. Well, there's sort of a natural balance there because they want to keep customers. I mean, their stock value depends upon retaining customers. So if they're actually showing you stuff you don't want and you go somewhere else, it's basically keeping you happy, constrained to costs. And that's not different than mo many other businesses, right? I mean, restaurants consider food costs. So, I mean, it, there's nothing inherently evil in that. It's just, I think people end up feeling that, oh my God, my favorite movie's not on Netflix. Definitely. I mean, there's, yeah, it, it's definitely a, a mix of things, but I, uh, I do find it interesting. I mean, I know they got rid of the, they got rid of user ratings. Now they show they show the percentage that they that they think you're likely to like a movie, and then they also I know you've spoken about this, but they've gotten rid of the or they allow you to opt out of the autoplay feature so that it doesn't take you it doesn't encourage the binging that has somehow gone from a negative to a positive in the last couple of years semantically. You know, I think it's the other thing is is the autoplay is for many people just annoying. They don't want to hear audio when they're thinking about what to watch. True, makes it harder to make that decision. But for a long time, that wasn't even a default. It wasn't even a setting you could change. It was just, a, and they finally got enough grief. I, I think they actually made it a default. It's not that easy to find. 
There's an important point here about choice architecture, by the way, which is we're really, really sensitive to very small effort costs. Can you give me an example? Little, well, there's, there's a good one, actually. I, I, this is something that appears to be the case. One of the um, providers of compliance technology for cookie management actually has introduced a little bit of delay for that second screen, 150 milliseconds. And when people have done experiments, that actually does change people's willingness to wait for that screen to pop up. Even 150 milliseconds, if you're not familiar, is literally 0.15 seconds. It's a little bit more than a tenth of a second. But so those little costs make a big difference. And that's, you know, I, I talk about choosing strategy, the way we look at information, what I call plausible paths. And those are often determined by very small costs at the beginning. So even when we talk about site load times or things like that, you know, in terms of it can be the difference between someone requesting a demo of your product or asking about pricing or something like that versus them just disengaging altogether. Yeah, I mean, this is exactly the sort of idea of customer acquisition funnel that you're getting rid of a question that funnel often produces. I'm not telling your listeners anything they don't know, but that's a good example of that is by making the funnel easier, you, you get more people to the end of the funnel, which is you know being on the mailing list or getting the newsletter or whatever the target behavior is. Interesting. Well, well, speaking of sort of the these options, I'm curious to give you a if I can pose a specific situation that that I potentially might encounter. Uh, so you know, being a a subscription company like a, a SaaS company like Netflix, um, you know, we want people to continually renew their contracts with us, stay with us for a long time. So if we're doing a renewal with a a customer and we're asking them to choose between a one, two or three year contract. And obviously, you know, it's cheaper as the contract becomes longer and we want them to choose the the three year one. How would you present those options? Should it be like on a call with them? Should it be sent to them in advance and then discussed on the call? What, what would you say your best strategy or best advice would be if we want to get those three year contracts? Well, let's keep it simple and let's keep just to, to me and let's think of how we would present them on the renewal website. Yes, because that gives us fewer. I mean, we could talk about lots of things, but let's. I'm going to complicate it as much as possible. <laughs> right. So I, I, I'm. Um, so here's the thing. It's a good example of there are multiple tools. So one decision you're making is how many options to present. So let's just assume you're going to present one, two, and three years. Although you could try monthly, you make right. it four. People do yeah. that. The first thing about order is. All of the things being equal, it's a short list, so you probably want to do three first, which is unusual because you naturally would get or sort it. So sorting is important by length of contract. Now, there, you are also making decisions about what attributes to present. That is, what, how do you describe the options? So one thing would be length. Another one, which would be very important, I would argue, is cost per year. That is actually, so let's say you're giving them a discount for year three. You know, Let's just say it's $10 a month if it's three-year contract, $11 a month if it's a two-year contract. Now, that is both a rationale, rationale for putting it first, but also it's doing a bit of math for people they might not do otherwise. Right. So picking the attributes and sorting them in a certain way are two other tools that the designer has that could encourage choice of that longer-term option. And if we were to choose them between, let's say, doing the math, like, would it be better to show the all, like X amount of cost over three years or show it on an annualized basis or show it on a monthly basis. It all adds up to the same amount of money, but is there one right. that will make it an option seem more appealing? So this is actually a good question. Certainly you have to do it on a common basis for all three for the three year to look good. 
let me make that clear. So you, you know, you couldn't do yearly. Well, you could, but you don't want to do the total, right? Because <laughs> it would the look three, manipulative. The three year is always going to lose on the total, by definition. Um, so coming up with some co common term like how much a year or how much a month, but I would suspect that giving it in a term that people understand, like a monthly term, many people budget on monthly basis. If you ever look around, you'll see cable subscriptions. Many subscriptions are described as by the month. That's because often that's how people get paid. So it's a natural sort of thing. Um, there's even research, by the way, talking about making it pennies a day makes it seem more accessible. Interesting. Because, I mean, it sounds smaller, it sounds cheaper, and then still always adds up to the same amount. But... Right. And so that's getting to the, to the realm of, I'm not quite sure, A, I'd want to say A-B testing. Also, I'd want to think about, am I taking advantage of people? Right. Is it almost, it, border, it becomes too manipulative at some point where people are just like, this is this is weird. I can sense that they're doing something to make it seem a certain way when it's an actuality. Another... So you're making two points. One is people may notice it, although it turns out people, again, are often, if they don't see this too often, do not. They're making a decision about how long of a contract to sign. They're not asking, why are they presenting me this? Right. Right. So, I mean, there, there, there's the awareness point. And there's also a point which is, well, the customers eventually become unhappy. And if they become unhappy, you might lose them. So when they do realize, if they do realize, is, is that, that an issue? So there are constraints. But the big thing is notice we're using multiple tools. It's not just, you know, always set the default to the right one. You really have right. to think about the whole tool bag. Right. Okay. Interesting. I had one more lens. I wanted to ask your opinion on this. If we do you have an opinion around because this ties into see the possibly the hamburger um, study that you talk about in the book, would it be better to present the options at, let's say the same price, but then as year one, but then for years two and three, you're seeing an escalating discount. So this is the price, but we're giving you this much off because you're doing the thing versus showing the actual price year over year and comparing those. Interesting. I mean, without saying, gee, that would be interesting to A-B test. I would true. say the, the following is true. You could do the following, which is you could say money saved with three-year contract, $10 year one, $20 total year two, $30 year three. That would be something that's legitimate. It's again, it's doing math that people might not themselves do naturally. Right. Give them all the tools, let's say, to, to make the decision that hopefully is best for everyone involved. That's really interesting. But I wanted to talk a little bit more about a, uh, some of the A-B testing, uh, specifically the example you gave around the, uh, it was a, a furniture website or a couch website in your book. Can you can you sort of walk us through what, what, that, is, what that was and what that sort of proved? And this is a good example of why you should always a-B test and don't just listen to me or any other expert. Um, a very uh, talented PhD student, I was teaching at the Wharton School at the time, came up to me and said, I think the background of a, wall, of a website makes a difference in what people look at. And she, I said, no, that can't possibly be the case. And she went out and she got websites. First, she said, if you see clouds, you think of comfort. And if you see cash, not surprisingly, you think about price. And so she developed websites that just changed the wallpaper. And then when people went out and bought couches, one was comfortable and expensive, the other was uncomfortable but cheap. And the market share of the two couches differed depending upon what the wallpaper was. And the reason for that is people, it just makes people think about different considerations. They become more concerned about comfort with the clouds 
and price right. when they were, when they see in one case it was pennies. And she did it with other products too. But the basic idea is that memory is really important decision-making and the environment can actually change what we think about. So in like based on that example, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you have others, I've, I've read about others, but are, would you say that by and large humans are irrational decision-makers or rational? So when I teach th this material, at this point, someone asks, you know, are we irrational? I say, compared to what? I mean, there's this notion in economics that is a decision maker that I think doesn't exist. You know, that is someone who is totally, you know, um, Richard Thaler calls it homo economicus. Okay. That's a theory. That's not really. So th th that is, are we doing as well as we can, given that we don't have infinite capacity, that we have limited memory? It's, it's a little bit intellectually lazy to say people are irrational. They're limited, and in what ways, and in what environments can. So this is sort of the important point about designing choices. How can we design choices so people will do as well as they can, given that choice? I, it's, it's a really interesting way to think about it. And it also makes me think about from the choice architecture side or the analysis of the choice, it might also be a data issue. Because if you look, take a simple example, like, you know, if, if I'm on a very tight budget and I'm deciding between an expensive, really soft couch or a cheap, somewhat comfortable couch, technically, I, you know, I'm, I'm on a tight budget. I'm a responsible person. I should pick the the, the cheap, less comfortable one, but I might pick that that other one. And if I were the more comfortable, expensive one, and unless you know everything there is to know about me and my life and what I've seen and what I've, and the most recent things I've seen and heard and talked about, I might've just read a blog about the importance of, you know, I spend 30,000 hours a year on my couch. So, you know, you shouldn't, whatever. Like it's, it's hard to make that conclusion that this actually, maybe it was a rational, logical decision. And it appears irrational when you just analyze it through two lenses or one lens. It's interesting, sort of on both sides, there's that, those, those gaps, those confounding factors to consider. Right. I mean, one thing that I think I, I've thought about a lot is how we tell whether someone's making a good choice or not. Because as you say, there's lots of things that get in the way of identifying that. The one that's usually been used is when people are inconsistent. You know, you use the background for, the, for money, they choose the, the cheap couch. They use the clouds, they choose the expensive couch. Now, that is, it's correct. They're being making, one of those decisions has to be bad, but which one, right? So the inconsistency is important, but it doesn't tell you how to, how to get someone to be better. Uh, I, another way of judging decisions is something I, I make the analogy to flight simulators. You know, we know if someone's in a flight simulator, they do well if they land, if they crash, it's bad. Right, it's, it's a one or a zero, yeah. Exactly, we can give people a website and say, find the cheapest insurance policy or find the most durable iron. And if they can't do that, then we know there's something about the website that's keeping them from making the right decision. So we can often judge decisions by giving people oh, essentially the equivalent of landing in Charles de Gaulle Airport. You know, find this insurance policy. And if they can't do it, we know that they need help. You mentioned finding the best iron. And earlier you talked about finding gloves. Um, and it's funny because I, I knew that I was going to be interviewing you. And so I also noticed this at a, at a restaurant I was at. So on Amazon, they put, you know, Amazon's choice. They'll put that little banner. Um, at the restaurant I was at, they had three items on the menu that I, that just so happened to be their most expensive items, you know, sort of encircled in like a beautiful design. And then the rest of the items were sort of listed below. What is the impact of those? Is it really doing a lot? Like are way more people selecting the Amazon's choice one because of that? flag or is it negligible like what are your what are your thoughts on those sorts of i don't know i want to call them manipulations but in my tools i think is how you 
Uh, the, the more polite and correct way to call them. So what do those tools do? Well, they're sort of a way of making you think about options in certain orders. If your eye is drawn to the Amazon's choice, and you said that first, then we know what's going on. You're going to consider that, and if it's, and it will have certain advantages. So, I mean, to me, the sort of Amazon's choice or boxed the menu, or it turns out with an Amazon um, row where you have multiple pictures, you tend to, it's a picture and you tend to be drawn to the middle one. So the middle one there is going to have, have its advantages. So basically the key is order is important, but it's going to be order in which things are considered and not necessarily order in which things are presented. You know, everyone wants to say it should be first or last. And the answer is you should probably should be first considered. First considered. And you're saying on Amazon, the first considered is always in the middle or it's... I'm saying it's often as you're scanning. I mean, really to do this, I would sit down. You know, eye trackers exist. They're not terribly expensive. I would watch customers. But my bet is, is that yeah. you're going to see that Amazon's choice gets considered much more quickly or an option gets considered much more quickly when it's Amazon's choice than when it's not. And in your menu, the boxed items with stars get considered more often or earlier than when they're not. Interesting. So even tying this into the contract conversation, if we're presenting options, having one that we are somehow highlighting or if it's or if it's live suggesting if we're saying I personally this is the one that I think would be the best option for these reasons then at least we know they'll be the they'll consider that first before moving on to right. if there are other reasons why they don't want to do that right. fantastic I've not only taught you about tools but also about some of the a new tool which is basically highlighting an option excellent well on the uh, on the subject of getting free advice from you, which is, is fantastic. Um, our, our team is always reaching out to companies to see if they'd like to see a demo of our product, something I think all of our, most of our, our listeners are, are used to either doing themselves or, or being on the receiving end of that as well. Um, we try to target outreach, make it really relevant and helpful. But do you think there's anything in particular that tech companies or, you know, any companies really should start or stop doing to drive better outcomes with that outreach? When you're reaching out to someone that you've never spoken with before, but you, you think your product would be useful to them, so you're, you just want them to agree to take a look at it. So there's a lot of things that you could do, but one of the things that's interesting about your description is you said you don't know anything about the person, which makes it harder to customize the choice architecture. So there may be features of the product, of the system, that are better for some customers than others. And maybe it would be useful to have some intelligence, either through a conversation or prior research, to find out what does this kind of customer look for in a system like mine? Right. I'm, I'm sort of reinventing Salesforce 101, but from a very different <laughs> perspective. A salesperson is a designer, and right. good salespeople learn about their customers. Right. It's true. It's interesting to think about that, though, just even presenting salespeople as choice architects. They're creating options. And even if you're reaching out to someone, if I'm inviting someone to be on the podcast, it's still a, a yes or a no decision. And so I want to design my outreach in a way that will leverage, I guess, the, the tools I can to, to get the yes as often as possible. Exactly. Very interesting. I have a lot, I'm going to be overthinking every email I send now for the next uh, for the foreseeable future. Is this something that you now do automatically when you're asking for things or you're you know at a restaurant? Is this sort of now built into your brain? So the simple example of that is when I'm trying to set up an appointment with somebody, and it's not a question of the meetings, just when. Is I always present a default, and the default, of course, is something that's good for me. And I, the next line is always, of course, I'm free or flexible for other times. 
But you know, you'd be surprised how often the default gets chosen, even from people who you know are busy. They you know they don't want to go through the calendar either. So that's free. We'll do it. So that's just one small example of how you know in my life I put this stuff to work. And how do you and your wife select the movie that you're going to watch? Um, I just do whatever she says. <laughs> Fair enough. Good policy. Can't go wrong. Can't go wrong with that. Fortunately, we have similar taste, so that's not it's not a big cost. Okay, that's you're lucky. My my partner is like true crime, you know, murder documentary, and then I'm like, you know, comedy or you know some sci-fi thing. So, yeah, a little harder to land on 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 uh, the best option. So you need some uh, choice architecture now. We do, but now there's been even more choices because now it's not just Netflix, right? It's like okay, we have to go through Netflix, Peacock, Hulu, HBO. Or something that I've downloaded. Maybe I've downloaded a movie from the you know 30s or 40s that we've been wanting to watch for a while, and like so now we've got eight million options, each trying to pull us in different directions, each leveraging their own tools to try to get us, pull us in, and keep us there. So it's it's interesting. It sounds like you might want to reduce the number of options. True. I mean, it would be nice. I should do that. And my finance apps are telling me that you have too many subscriptions, right. too many subscriptions, I think is is the theme for this decade. Um, well, listen, it was, it was fantastic having you on the show. I, I, I obviously I learned a lot and this hour flew by. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I'm excited to, to read through the rest of your book. Um, we're going to put the link in the description so everyone should should check it out. I'm, I'm I think I said five chapters in and and have bookmarked like every other page to follow up, follow up on as we uh, keep building stuff here at Catalyst. So definitely recommend it to everybody to check out. Yeah, one of the reasons I wrote the book is I think it would be very useful in the entire world of UX design. So mm -hmm. it's really uh, exciting to be with you and talk to, talk to your audience. Well, thank you again so much. And I, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Okay, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Make sure to subscribe. And if you want to reach out to us, our email is community at getcatalyst.io.